0: I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, which I get inside the minds of some of our best known chefs to find out what makes them tick. We discover what got them into cooking, how they honed their craft and what inspires them now. Hopefully, you'll also be able to glean some tips as to how to improve your own skills in and outdoors as the weather turns cold. Speaking of which, we're giving away a state-of-the-art of, the art of a barbecue in every single episode. Today, it's the channel of one of Britain's top chefs, Marcus Waring. Marcus famously worked hand in glove with Gordon Ramsay for many years, earning several Michelin stars along the way. After what's fair to describe as a, an acrimonious partner of the ways, he opened Marcus Waring at the Barbecue back in 2010, now simply known as Marcus, where she's Chef Patron. He's also made numerous television appearances, including Great British Menu uh, he, um, well, wh- the backside of me, it'd be fair to say, um, <laughs> Marcus, welcome uh, to grilling. It is so good to see you. I mean, it's funny, we were just saying before we came on air that apart from Great British Menu, the last time we saw each other was 2012 at Downing Street. It's weird, isn't it, how when, when we did Great British Menu, you're in each other's pockets all the time. And then the thing with our industry, because we all work
1: yeah. so hard, you do not seen anybody for years. It's bizarre, I know. And I, if I just wanted to see you, i just put the telly on. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing your show And for me on MasterChef as well it's, uh, it's funny how you see people That you've known for so long I want to start with Great British Menu And then I, when I,
0: when I want to backtrack Because I think it's, you know, it's where I knew you from so, so Marcus and I did the first series Of Great British Menu yeah. And so the premise of Great British Menu now It's all Michelin star level chefs Yeah, But in that first series It wasn't So you'd have someone like you Obviously you know a, a top Michelin star chef And then the likes of me when they said that I was battling against you, I genuinely felt sick. <laughs> <laughs> because it, because it's, you still are one of the chefs that I admire most in the industry. I, I loved the style of cooking that you do. I love the whole way in w- which you hold yourself. And there was me. Is the owner at the time, just one restaurant which is a, a forty seven cover vegetarian restaurant and i 'm going to go up against you, so I thought right what i 'm going to do is i 'm going to go down i 'm going to eat at marcus 's restaurant. so I went with my good friend Paul Askew who has since been on grapefish' menu, and I remember after two courses, I sat and looked across at Paul and I said, "I am going to get my ass whooped and I did i wouldn 't say whooped I loved it, however, because I think that to to this day one I got to cook for you because you came up and ate it at greens, and I was, yeah, you know, I was delighted yeah. that. And, yeah, and, and I you remember, know, I remember that. And you're a very honest human being, and you know, and I know that you certainly on camera, radio, you wouldn't have been afraid to say that was rubbish, and you say very nice things about the food, which I loved. And then also the fact that it was amazing because I've never worked at your level of the industry. When we were actually doing the show, seeing that level of precision and knowledge was just incredible and I don't know if you remember but the, what they wanted at the time, the producers wanted us to have animosity they wanted there to be a little yeah. bit of conflict and I said, this guy is one of my heroes in the industry, I am absolutely not, not. going to criticise
1: this man because I'm looking at what you doing and thinking wow, so let's <laughs> custard tart <laughs> uh, First of all, I, I, I remember going back to your, I remember going to your restaurant yeah. uh, I remember the journey in Manchester and I also remember the day uh, it was a coldish, almost autumnal day and I remember walking into your restaurant and it was almost sort of cafe-esque restaurant yeah. style. But I could also see how difficult that day was for you. And I think that really did shine through. And I think sometimes you, you reflect on times of that you can always judge people by the cover. And I think there's always more too and how hard that was in that location. And vegetarian cookery, who 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 would do that? It was just, that was unheard of in those times. But I think when, when we went into the kitchen, there was always, for me, it was as hard for me I think, as I think it was for you for a couple of reasons. A, there's a camera on you. Yeah. Uh, and B, I was trained and put into kitchens where y- you were exposed when you showed any weaknesses or when you showed your, you know, your inaccuracy in cookery. There was a fear factor of having that feeling on television, but also being in a competition. And I absolutely didn't feel that I wanted to be in a competition. I didn't yeah. want to compete with anyone. Because I hate losing and if I lost, <laughs> how would you deal with it? Yeah. So there's all these emotions that even though you had your issues or your concerns, I ah, mine were just as big, but in a completely different way. Well I think I think I was in that fortunate position. I was almost like
0: I was like the non league club playing against kind of Real Madrid really. I had nothing to lose. If I'd have beaten you, it would have been the greatest upset. I know it was the first series, but that still would there have been a lot of about. big
1: chefs in that competition. Yeah, huge. You know, there was there was there was so many. I mean, off the top, of my head, Anthony Ward, Thompson, there was Gary Rhodes, there was there was Atul, there was me, there was you. And there was so many. It was like it was, like it was a serious yeah. group of chefs in there as well of of their age. Some of them who were at the top of their game in in different areas. You were sort of this north chef from the northwest who probably a lot of those chefs had not heard of, but you stood your own ground yeah. in what was a very difficult environment because remember, we all cooked together. Oh, we were gosh. all in there at the same oh, time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was nerve wracking. I think I learned
0: a lot mm. and, you know, I, I I genuinely mean it, you know, I think I learned a lot from you that day. You know, I've I, you know i owned restaurants for kind of 30 years, but never at your level and just watching that precision, I think you come away the other side of it and you go, I enjoyed the experience. You know, yeah. I, I I felt that just, watch what you did was, was kind of quite incredible. And then, yes, we, we, and again, the custard tart, which I think probably to this day is probably still the most talked about dish possibly ever on Great British Man, even now.
1: I don't know if it still is. But I know I still get asked to cook it uh, <laughs> at the restaurant. I had uh, someone at the weekend request it, uh, just gone for a special occasion. It's, it's a dish that is probably I've sold the most of because people have come to the restaurant to try it. And do you know what set the scene for that? Not just winning it and cooking it for the Queen and being part of that amazing banquet. It was it was Prue Leaf just on camera almost going to heaven through what she yeah. considered as nostalgia. It was something she'd not tried for years and that, oh my goodness me, what have I just tasted? It was pastry, it was custard, set and nutmeg. Three very simple points, but when you get it right, it's something special and I think that's the note I hit on that day and it just happened to get the recipe right
0: that sexy wobble That's on it. that custard tart i mean if ever you've tried to make a custard tart at home then you'll know what tends to happen is you go one or two ways you either go so it's slightly over and it's a little bit too set almost cheesecakey, yeah or it's under and the minute you cut it that nose is gone
1: this recipe in the Northwest in the, in, when I was growing up were always always individual tarts they were never a big one yeah and so y- to make a large one was sort of almost not sort of you didn't see it or, I, I had to take a recipe my grand's recipe and play around with it and adapt it and adapt it and change it it was all about egg yolks egg whites with it cream double cream milk and there's a lot of playing around so it took a lot of work because the recipe that I was given was delicious yeah. but it wasn't good enough to win something because it was a home recipe and I had to take the recipe up to another level <sighs>
0: I mean, right. Okay. So, we, so we've set that one up. So, so now I can kind of, now can relax. This is the first time we've ever talked about. Yeah, many, it's true actually. <laughs>
1: since, since the time
0: that we did it. So let's go back to the start then. Growing up, what, what do we have? What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the background to mum and dad?
1: Uh, mum, housewife, dad, workaholic. Um, seven days a week in the warehouse running a fruit potato business who he inherited from his father who passed away, uh, who I never met, my granddad. Um, and my dad was 22, he had to take over the family business with wow. his, his brother and his sister. My dad was the eldest and he he was at the forefront of it. So he was a man that to get the maximum, to get the best out of this, unschooled, you know, left school at 13, smoked like a chimney, drank (laughs) teeth by the gallons uh, and worked like a trooper. And that's where I came from. So a working class background. Mum was was a um, housewife. Everything at home was mum. Cooking, ironing. And she was a stickler for housekeeping. When she ironed, she ironed to perfection. When she... Did any house cleaning? It was always done the right way. My father had the same ethos in his warehouse: an orange, a potato, an onion, a carrot. Everything had a value. You throw nothing away. You look after everything. You stock rotate. Used to go to Liverpool, Preston markets, buy produce, bring it back to to the warehouse, and we used to store it, nurture it, look at. I mean, literally. Sometimes I felt like I was babysitting potatoes <laughs> um, because my dad was always about buying, selling, buying, selling on very small margins, very, very small margins. And that's what I learned along the way. You know, as a schoolboy, I had to go to his warehouse to, to A, spend time with him. But B, I didn't realise I was learning the trade of, um, I wanted to be my dad. I wanted to run my dad's business. That was that was always the goal. And in terms of personality, was your dad
0: giving in that praise then? So if you wanted to earn his kind of, you know, his praise for kind of, for doing a good job, was he, because I'm sort of thinking, you know, you're a few years younger than me, but it's a similar kind of time mm-hmm. when men, if you like, didn't really offer a great deal of kind of like praise and arm around the shoulder and hugs. No,
1: never. No, there was no there was no praise. There was not praise. Didn't really exist. Um, it was just work, graft, get on, get stuck in. What's wrong with you? What are you moaning about? Why are you tired? Get fucking on with it. <laughs> you know, and a, and a, a clip around the ear or a boot in the arse if you did something wrong, and a proper boot in the arse as well. I mean, my dad didn't pull his punches. It wow. was hard as nails. And my mum was too. And at home, whenever he was there, he was fast asleep in the, in, in, in the chair. He couldn't you know, couldn't keep his eyes open, my old man.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because I think that whatever you have as your life is your life. And it's only when mm. you get old and, and, and have your own kids, you look back and you think, maybe there's a different way. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And, and, but but as, I suppose the, the key on that is that your dad's attitude, and your mum's as well, set you up as a worker. You know, you've always been a grafter all of your life so so that that's the starting point when did you
1: figure you wanted to to cook well first of all there was a day when the age was 13 or 14 my dad could see there was no conversation with me about what i was going to do next there was no talk about a career in anything apart from doing what my dad was doing yeah and for some for some strange reason one day he just turned to me he says he said mate he said we're on the back of a wagon and there's two times, there's two things he told me on the back of a wagon that changed my life. Was One, he told me when my nan passed away, his mom, which was devastating to me because that was almost my one and only friend was my nan because my time outside school was always in the warehouse. Yeah. So I used to hang out with her in, 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 in the living room in, the, in front of the coal fire trying to keep warm. And the other time was when my dad said, this this, this, this industry's fucked. He was like, this is it, this is it. It's coming to an I was like, what do you mean? He said, look, he said, I'm not going to beat around the bush. He said, you're not coming into the family industry. It's not going to be worth anything in a few years. Go and find yourself a so career. So what year
0: is this, Marcus? So that' That'll be 83,
1: 84. Okay, yeah. 83, 84. is fucked this, that, and all the rest, swearing his head off, fag hanging out of his mouth. And that was it. He got off the wagon and left me there. I was standing there like, what do I do? And there was only one of... Did, there was no career advice. <laughs> not like, there was no, let, let me go and help you do this or go and speak to your careers advisor at school. I mean, my dad didn't have a clue what I was doing at school. You know, neither did my mother. They're clueless. I don't even think they even went to a school to see my teachers. My dad wow. was all, no, nothing like that. No talk about homework. No talk about reading books. No talk about what you're doing. It's nothing, nothing. It was all about work. And so when he said that to me and I was standing, I was like, well, there's only really one thing I can do now. Well, who, who's next in line after your dad? Well, it was my big brother. Right. Who was the chef
0: okay and right. so
1: that was the well if i can't do that i'll just do what's next that... so how old, how much older is your brother than you? He's seven years older
0: all right so so there's quite a gap then yeah, yeah, so, yeah. He, so so he was already in in the industry yeah
1: he was a head chef in a restaurant in southport and then he moved on to be chef de cuisine of a, of a hotel on lord street in southport which we use i used to d- deliver it to it for my father's company delivered to it and lots of restaurants and hotels so he delivered to lots of places in southport alongside the school meal services so I used to deliver into this kitchen and the characters in this kitchen yeah. were hilarious. Just trying to get a sausage sandwich or a bacon sandwich when you're delivering an amount of abuse and the language and the fun and the jokes and just these guys were great fun. And I was with also equally great guys on the wagons delivering all this stuff. Yeah. And so I, I asked my brother, could I have a part-time job doing breakfast, doing buffets for weddings and making sandwiches? And he, he let me in. So when I'd finished my working with my dad on a Saturday and Sunday, I used to go to the hotel and top up what I was doing, so I was always in work. And my brother made me go to Southport Catering College um, against my wishes, a full-time course, which was like, "What? stop work, okay? My dad and him sort of ganged up on me. And it was the best thing I ever did because I did more in hospitality, did the wine, the service, and I had a great time at Catering College. I loved the two years in Southport College. Two of the best years of my life. Were you good? Um... There was two sides to me in Catering College. There was the practical side, which, which I was told was a natural thing I had. And there was the theory side that I, I knew was my weakness, but I made it my strength. My, my theory in my classroom became stronger than my kitchen because I spent hours and hours learning. So rather than be great practical but not good in the theory, I actually became equally as good in my theory. My dad always says, work on your weaknesses, not your strengths. Yeah. And that's what pushed me to the top of that case in college. Everything I did, my exams, I came top in them all. I tuned my brain into the exams to make sure I beat everybody because it was all about being top. Yeah. And I don't know where I got the hunger from. Maybe that was my dad's work ethic because the first time I left the workplace of my father and went into an environment where I was competing with other people. Yeah. Because I didn't compete with anyone at school. There was no one to compete with. Yeah. Uh, It was a school. When you compete... And I, I
0: suspect that you're probably not a great deal different now. Are you, in reality, you compete with yourself? Being the best is about being the best
1: in Marcus Waring's terms. It's, it's about, yes, it's about reflecting on what you've just done or what you're about to do and making sure you don't look back with regret or laziness. And I wish I tried harder. Yeah. I think looking back in regret is one of the worst things you can do in life. And you want to achieve all your goals. I often get asked, would you change anything in the past? God, no. <laughs> there's been some highs and there's been some lows and there's been some really tough times. But that builds character. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, I've won things and I've lost things. Um, it's how you react is the key. Positive thinking, positive mind. I've got three kids at home and I'm not going to crumble in front of them because I've lost something or I, I've not done something right. I've learned to be a great communicator. And there's only one thing that made me become a good communicator. It wasn't my job. It wasn't me. It wasn't my father. It was going on MasterChef. Really? Yeah, I couldn't communicate prior to MasterChef. I, I did everything myself. I barked at people. I directed people. It was all about the way I wanted.
0: Right. Let Let's follow that path then. I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm kind of going out. We'll We'll come back to yeah. the career. So how 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 did it change? What made you realize?
1: First of all, MasterChef was the one and only thing that took me out of the kitchen. Yeah, first time ever. I was uh, a work freak. I was on top of it. I controlled it and I manipulated everything that was about it. I was invited to take part or to take over from Michelle because Michelle had lost. What year was this, Because so This was seven years ago. Okay. Uh, and I got a call from the producers. Can we come and see you? Uh, and we just got something that I'd like to talk to you about. And I said, well, I'm just about to reopen Marks at the Barclay. It was literally the week I was opening. Yeah. And I cleared my diary for the next six months. I was doing nothing at all. It was all about that restaurant. Because i just spent a, m- a fortune on refurbishing that room. And they came to see me and they said, well, listen, we're going to go straight to the point. We'd like to take over from Michelle Rue. And I swear to God, Simon, I said, excuse me? <laughs> Michelle Rue, you want me, of all people, to replace Michelle, knowing the type of chef and person I was? Yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am the opposite to Michelle. Yeah. There's something they saw that I didn't know. Yeah. And when I had finished sort of with my poker face of which I'm, I'm celebrating inside that I've just landed one of the best gigs on yeah. television. I couldn't quite believe it when they'd walked out of the room, what had just happened. If someone said to me, Marcus would go, would you go and run down, uh, run down a high park corner now naked and come back? Yeah. Cause you just got, I would have done it. Yeah. I was so delighted. Wow. Like, wow. And I was like, what do they see that I can't see when I got, I finally got to the studios. There was was two things I was asked to do. There was no training. You you just get in, you get on, you do it. You know that as well as anyone. Two things, Marcus. is what you. One thing you can't do, and there's one thing you have to do. First of all, don't swear. Secondly, smile. That was a tricky one. That was a tough one. (laughs) Second one, smile. Yeah. That's it. That was the brief. Yeah. And show them. And I didn't. Then it all started to come to life. Was. I may be talking to the chef in front of me, but I'm actually communicating to the viewer yeah. sat at home. So explain the detail of food and why you think it's right, wrong, or whichever, to the chef. But also remember the people at home aren't tasting anything. Express your mind and express your imagination in words in a way you've never so done before.
0: How, so how hard did you find it on the, on those first sort of few days of filming? How tricky was it?
1: I didn't find the expression of food difficult or or the television, I've, yeah, because. It was always upstairs, it was always in my head. Yeah, I just used to speak. Remember, I just used to speak to cooks in my kitchen who I expect to know what yeah. to do, but the information's already there, the knowledge is in my head. I never speak about it because I just do it. Yeah, you have do it when you go into a studio, you have to express that, and that, that's when the passion comes out, and that's when that brings a smile to my face. And that's when I actually realized that behind what was always seen as the steely ex- exterior there actually is this chef who is bubbling with excitement and and enthusiasm, but has never shown it in a professional kitchen. So that brought the best out of me, the studio, the most unusual place I ever go to, because it's the only place I go to where someone tells me what to do. So on the back of
0: that then, has that changed the way you then communicate in the
1: businesses now? 100%. Yeah. Completely different. Talking, communicating working with the teams, expressing great food ideas. And actually, rather than being a dictator, um, I was actually someone who actually brought the best out of people. So I've brought the best out of people in the last seven years than I've probably done in my whole career.
0: So it's, 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 a, it's made you a, a, a better boss. Yes. That's amazing. That's absolutely blown me away. I love that. Right, it, was so never,
1: th- it was never about being on TV, Simon. No, no, no. It was yeah. always about what can i learn i love working in different industries yeah. i love being in radio i love writing books i love i love being on television i love watching the cameramen the sound men the directors the editors they're all tradesmen in their field yeah. i find them fascinating
0: i love that word and i i feel exactly the same yeah. you know don't get wrong you know i i'm very fortunate i've had an, an amazing career in telly which touch what i'm still getting away with but i'm the same as you i, I was never really driven by being famous in Don't inverted commas. Yeah, I, I I like the whole thing. Same now, you know, we're sitting here now and we're getting filmed and there's technicians and I love it. Anybody's skills it's like, you know, when you see a glazer putting a pane of glass you go, Wow. All right. So that that's great. I'm gonna jump back then. Yep. So okay, so, so you go to catering College. What's the first job after catering College?
1: Well I was in a competition and it was called the British Gas Capability Competition. And I got to the London Finals uh, and didn't win, which really played on my mind. I bet. When I came back to the U two to Southport there was a lecturer uh, Jack Neighbour and he was a lecturer in I think in I think in one of them in, in Manchester I can't remember uh-huh. and he spotted me in the heats and he gave me a call he dropped me a line to my teacher my lecturer and he said I really love the way this particular cook Marcus Wayne, worked and he said he's got something a little bit different. And what it was that made me different to the other contestants was the way my board was set out, the way my apron was spotless, the way my knives were laid out, my father's precision about what cleaning the board down. So I worked with this methodical thinking that no one else in that room did. He saw that and then decided that he wanted to link me with Anton Adelman at the Savoy. Right. So when someone says to you, would you like to go and work at the Savoy in London under the most incredible chef, yeah. Anton Edelman? This was, so I'm talking about 1987 now, where five star hotels and those chefs we, were the men. Yeah. They were the only place to go and work. My goodness me, Simon, I couldn't believe what a life changing thing that was for me. First day then,
0: when you're in the Savoy, what's oh. it like?
1: Walked into Anton Edelman's office with seven other chefs, and it was an induction day. And he called out names. When he called out a name, you're standing there in your white. You've had your induction. You, you're standing there in your whites with your big hat on and your long white apron that you'd never worn in your life before. He calls out your name. He, he, he introduces himself. He then calls out a chef who's standing outside his office. So you had seven chefs inside and seven chefs outside. We got bodied up with a chef. I got yeah. marched to the furthest point of the kitchen, and it was the cold fish section. And I was put in there with this chef. And it was the most empty, soulless, coldest place I'd ever walked into because it wasn't home. Yeah. And it was London and it wasn't Southport and it wasn't my dad's warehouse and it wasn't the Skageby Hotel kitchen. It was the Savoy Grill, cold fish section. And my God, it was cold. I never felt so empty and so scared in all my life. But that point, I probably could have quite easily walked, turned around yeah. and walked right back out again. But I know full well in my head that what my dad would say to me when I landed back at Lime Street Station saying it wasn't for me. Yeah. The, the, the abuse and the language that... The, not abuse, is the wrong word. <laughs> the arse-kicking that would have come out of his voice. <laughs> my dad always said to me, Marcus, when you go, don't come back. Don't ever come back to this town. And I used to say, why is that? He said, because there's nothing in Southport for you. Yeah. Go and get something go and do something do you think your
0: dad was right incidentally i I, again i'm sort of i'm flitting around a bit on this thing. when your dad said like you know that 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 his industry was kind of was doomed do you think he was right his
1: industry yeah yeah he was yeah because my dad couldn't modernize himself right okay my dad would never been able to modernize his company so yes it was doomed right Okay, fine. I, I, I was just thinking, you know, I was, right.
0: in my, yeah, it was in my head sort of thing, you know, people still kind of have this, right, it's about modernization, about the fact he, he also, hit also, a point oh, where my, my old
1: man's old-fashioned. Yeah. He said to me, if you push buttons into a calculator, push the wrong buttons, you get the wrong answer. Use paper, pencil, and add up the old-fashioned yeah. way. And yeah. he'd have done that, and he still does that today. Wow. And he's 80 years old. Wow, I love that. That's brilliant. He won't change. And love he wouldn't it. change then, and he won't change today. And I like that. Yeah. And so what I've done is I've taken the best bits of my father, and I've taken the bits I don't want to be like. Yeah, um, I don't want to be that workaholic that doesn't see his kids. I don't want to be that hard on my children, firm but fair. Yeah. And, and just communicate in a much better way. So, so your first day, so, you, so you're hating it and you could possibly walk away. How
0: long then until you felt, okay, I've made the right decision?
1: Two and a half, almost two. Yeah, probably about two and a half years later. Wow, that's a long time. Until I was at Gavroche. Yeah. And when I Because when I, when I, I did just under two years at the Savoy. And where did you end up with the Savoy any. I didn't enjoy the Savoy because I didn't like London. London was a scary place. And I only felt safe in London when I was in the kitchen. Right, okay. That's interesting. And the problem I had in the kitchen wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I just kept getting promoted quickly. And I found myself at senior levels, but yet I didn't have the years of experience. And again, it was my work ethic and my dad's training. I had spent, Simon, five years of rotating and ordering and buying and looking after fruit and veg and organising things. I had this training of produce beyond my age that that any other chef around me never had. So when you put me in charge of a cold fish section that I was buying more fish than the butcher in the hotel, I was given the responsibility after two months of being in Savoy. I was promoted to chef to party after two months. Wow.
0: Yeah. So I suppose to qualify for kind of listeners who aren't involved in our industry. How long would that normally take? If you were a competent, ambitious four, four, chef. Four or five
1: years. Right, so two months. Two months. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't understand it. And I, I didn't realise until I reflected back as time went on and I got older what had happened there. But I could fill it fish at speed. I could rotate. I had this speed in what I did. And I just used to plough through the work like an absolute stormtrooper. And I loved it. Yeah. And my, my, my hands were septic. My hands, my, oh, the pain of your hands being dry and wet and all the fish slime and the the effect, infections that you used to get into your hands and just tough times for me. Yeah. Um. But the work kept me going and I think that's what I really enjoyed the most. When did I fall in love with London? Long, long, long time down the line. Yeah. So two months you, you get promoted. You get promoted all the time and then you say, then you, then you end up with Le Gavroche. Yeah. How did that come about then? There was a competition, an Egon Roney competition in Savoy Kitchen where Egon Roney had brought in a lot of top restaurants into into um. The Savoy Hotel to run this big competition. And one of these restaurateurs that came in to compete for the Egon Rogi Trophy, Eon Rony Trophy, was the Waterside Inn. Long story short, every restaurateur, chef that came in to compete in this competition was buddied up with a Savoy chef to be able to find the equipment, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Anyway, the chef that worked with the Waterside Inn team was offered a job at the Waterside and he turned it down. Waterside was a three star Michelin, one of the yeah. best in the world. Yeah. And he turned it down. Do you know why he turned it down? He was French and he didn't want to go and work in a French restaurant. And he loved the Savoy and he liked being in a bigger kitchen. Right. He, he didn't understand he didn't want to go and do that precision. I went home and I called my dad that night and I said I told him that story. And he said to me, he said, I said, Dad, that, that could have been me. I could have had that job offer. Yeah. You don't just walk into the Savoy, because basically going to walk at the Water Side in Gavroche, you yeah, there was a waiting lists for years to yeah. get in. In those days, there was a waiting list, believe it yeah. or not. He said, right. He said, listen, I'll tell you what to do. He said, I can hear that you're upset and I can hear that. Yes, that could have been you. So, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm off tomorrow. He said, right, get up, get your suit on, have a shave. He said, and go and go and knock on the door. Gavroche said, Dad, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. He said, do it for me. Will you just do it for me. I said, Are you serious? He said, Go and knock on the door. How old are you now? 19. Okay, right. Go and knock on the door. Because you remember, you remember there was a, there was there was a, some TV shows, I viewed the same pattern. Well, the the yeah. things in Liverpool where it's like, you want a job? Go knock on the door. Just go yeah, and ask. Yeah. That was my dad's mentality. I did. I knocked on the door. Two weeks later, I got a letter from the head chef offering me a job. Wow. And I went in and had an interview. I literally, knocked on the door. Couldn't speak to the head chef. It was Mark Prescott because Michelle yeah. wasn't there. Sat down. I told him where I was from. He was from Wigan. And he said, that's brave coming in here, knocking on the door. And I said, yes, yeah, so I want to come work for you. He said, where, where are you now? And I got the offer. What was really interesting was, I went back to, how my noticing, and I went to see Anton Edelman. When I told him I wanted to leave, he said, no, 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 no. And he said, and he said no, stay with us, stay with us. And I said, Chef, I really want to go and do this. He said to me, he said, well, what's more important than working at Savoy? Where's better than here? And he had a good point, I have yeah. to say. He said, well, I, I said, Chef, I said, i actually got myself a job at Gavroche. And he, and he looked at me and he says, wow, okay, congratulations. He said, you won't make it. <laughs> He said, that's too difficult, that kitchen for you. That's a three-star meeting. That's on a completely new level. Those words rang in my ear the day I walked into Gavroche, and I said, you know what? That's the kick in the arse I needed. And maybe you may have been right at that point. Yeah. But I needed to hear that from Anton. And all those 35 years later, I I still can picture it and remember it today. I mean, it's little things like that in life that give you the urge or the the drive to move forward. Do you think, though, because
0: Anton was a very, very clever man. Oh, he was. Do you think that possibly there was a part of him that knew you were good enough, but knew how you would respond by him saying that?
1: There's a possibility of that. I think he did want to keep me. Um, And I also think that maybe I was going into an arena that was probably I wasn't quite ready for. And I think there's an element of that possibly he may have been right. I go into Gavroche, 24 chefs, three star Michelin, they work all together as a unit. The most unbelievable kitchen I'd ever, I'd ever walked into at that age. And it was chalk and cheese compared to the Savoy. But there was a big difference about that kitchen. It was about seriously one-on-one with the chef and it was about precision. But in that kitchen, there was one point of difference that stood out like nothing else. Which was? Gordon Ramsay. Okay. He was in there. And he had just spent three years with Marco. And so when I walked into that, re- into that kitchen and saw that's my first service, there was also this one person that stood out head and shoulders from everyone else because he was trained to a different level. What was Gordon's role? What what position was he in the he kitchen? He was the chef de party on the fish section at that point when right, I walked okay. in there. So he's still a relatively but, yeah. kind of you know middle to, to low ranking chef. Another at that level. Point. Another level. Oh, he 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 stood out because there were the two things that, that I po- talked to my dad about that night. One was the my first day at Gavroche, the job that my father made me go and get. Yeah, and this guy, this bloke that was in the kitchen. And I told my dad about this guy. And he said, well, why does he differ? I said, Dad, the precision, the focus, the attention stick, the speed. He cooked He cooked the kitchen under the table. Wow. And he said, mate, he said, there's one thing you should do with people like that. He said, take note, pay attention, and don't let him out of your sights. Stick with him. So go on then. All my dad is at the back end of all my decisions. Yeah. And I love that. And it's funny because... He's a wise old man. Yeah. He's an old-fashioned old man. And, you know, kids of today need guidance they need to listen to an older now an older owl of time and age they're important you may not like what they say but they're important and they have real value kids don't like that today well yeah and i and i think as well i think there's also
0: that that whole thing i think that, that our whole work ethic is different i think one of the joys that we have of working in the hospitality industry is that fundamentally it's still based on precision and discipline etc etc but i think you're right i think that you know I don't know about you, but we, we, you know, when I was at school, I was told I can achieve whatever I want. The only thing to hold me back is me. I don't know whether schools can say that to kids anymore. That's not criticism of schools. That's criticism of opportunities that are yeah that are out there.
1: Unfortunately, the thing with today is that kids can see everything on their phones. Everything. So the opportunity they can already see it. They don't actually go and get it because it's on their in their hands. And they want it immediately. Yeah. And the information's there. So you know as well as I do, Simon, you can find any recipe out there. Yeah. You can see a picture of it. You can see the recipe cooked by 20 other different chefs, some of them best in the world. And all you need to do is copy it. Yeah. That's not called experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Experience is about being there and living it. Yeah. And that's the one thing I find quite hard to get into people's heads. But I've stopped trying to do that now. I do my job on MasterChef. I do my job in the kitchen. and There's only three people I need to get into their heads. And that's my three kids. Yeah. They're yeah. the only three people I need to prove anything to, as in make sure they take on board my thinking yeah. along with their own and put the two together because that's what worked for me.
0: Okay, so you go into the garage. Yeah. Gordon is just there kind of absolutely standing out. So what's the next stage then? Where, where, do, we, where do we jump to in terms of the, what happens with Gordon and then what
1: happens with you? Gordon goes off to, to Paris to work for uh, Jean Robichon mm-hmm. and then he went on to work to, for Guy Savoir. I went off to work in upstate New York uh, in the Adirondack Mountains for Alberu, He sent yeah. me there. He took me to his office one day. you speak French, chef? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, there's no point in you going to France, then, is there? Because this is at the... Hey, Gavroche, when you did one year, the month before your your year is up, you were brought into Albert's office to basically be told you're going to move on because the waiting list was so long to get in. Right. They already had a chef waiting in my, for my place. Wow, But that was fine. And he sent me up to upstate New York where, believe it or not, I learned to barbecue. But will come back to that in a minute. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> Which is why we're here, by the way. Yeah. Um, I went to New York and then I went to Amsterdam. So I went to New York to get some time out. I'd had four, three and a half years in London. I was a bit tired. I wanted to go and do something different. He sent me out there for nine months. Who were
0: you working for up there?
1: Uh, for a place called The Point. It was in the Adirondack mountains and it was for a private family. Right. It was 11 log cabins in the mountains. So a Raleigh Chateau Hotel. Right, okay. And so luxurious, but where people from New York used to fly to for long weekends and spent cooking and and doing things quite on a very small, you know, there's only two of us in the kitchen. And you sort of said you felt you needed a bit of time out. I worked myself. I was going
0: to say that kind of burnout thing happens at at your level of the industry. It must happen a lot. And did you feel almost feel you were getting stale is maybe the wrong word, but that you felt "I, I can't
1: continue at this rate with this intensity? I don't know if I felt that. I just felt knackered. And again, I was promoted after a month of Gavroche. Again, right. straight away. Yeah. Went in as a commie, chef de party within a month. I was yeah. like, oh my God, here I go again. Yeah. And, but I gave it everything. And so because I couldn't keep up with Gavroche Kitchen, I used to be in an hour before all the other chefs and an hour after, which I got told off for at one point. But because I was promoted, I didn't have the mental capacity to be able to deal with all the work I had to get through. I just yeah. didn't understand how it all connected. So I was still learning my trade and still learning. I also had to look after other people who were under me. I'd never done any of this before. Yeah, In, I, I'd done it, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to be the one teaching people, not me teaching other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I felt like I was getting to the stage where I wasn't learning anything. All I was doing was surviving. Yeah. So when I went to New York, I, I found, I've met some really nice people and I learned the trade at a slower pace. Then I went to Amsterdam to learn bakery, which I really enjoyed with two French chefs under Albert and uh, then I went to work at Grave Time Manor where I met my wife there and I I wanted just to go and work somewhere that was a little bit slower and not be always promoted all of the time Yeah. and I had a great time I loved country house hotels What was your position there? I went in as a a demi-chef to party and ended up as sous-chef Okay. (laughs) and again I got myself into this promotional role again um, because I cooked this new menu for the hotel manager the hotel owner and he loved it and made me sous-chef um (laughs) And and, and I, I, I was on my way to go back and work in America, but I got tired. I just got tired of waiting for the green card. Yeah, And so I ended up going to work at the Tonclerc back in London, where um, um, uh, Pierre had just won three stars and was the new hot restaurant wow. at Royal Hospital Road. And when I walked back into that kitchen to get that job, I'd done a trial. Gordon Ramsay was there. Right. I hadn't spoken to him for three years. And he'd just come back from Paris, and he was um, the sous chef. He was there. he's there a month, the day I'd started. The week I started, at the end of that week, he handed his notice in to Pierre. and he was just on the... Then he was just basically just landed a deal to open the aubergine.
0: Did he have the same effect from, from that first day when you saw him at the Gavroche and he just came across as being, you know, this, this shining light? Yeah. When you went back in, you were back in Toclea, did it have the same effect?
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Exactly, exactly the same. Yeah, so well, three years down the line, still but had the same Bear in effect. mind, he just worked at Jaman. Yeah. And he just worked at the Guy Savoir. So not only was he, he, he was a chef that had Marco, Gavroche, and two of the biggest chefs on the planet under his CV. Wow. And he was at Tanclair, a place where he didn't really need to be, but he was just treading water. And Marco found him this site or found it with, his, with Marco's business partners, which, which became the aubergine. Basically, my, my first week of working there, Gordon was handling his notice in. And one of the reasons why I went to work at Tanclair was that Pierre, it wasn't for Pierre, because Pierre had just won three stars. That was one of the reasons. But the second reason was because Gordon was a sous chef. Right, okay. And I wanted to work under him. Yeah. My goodness me, the week I started, he left. <laughs> <laughs> so I followed him because okay. that was what my dad said. Right, okay. And I then unfortunately left Tom Clare after a month.
0: But you had to. I mean, you know, oh, we, 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 I think we've established very, very quickly that you, you're very single-minded and you're very focused. Yeah. And, they, you know...
1: It was an opportunity, I could yeah. Good as Tom Claire and Pierre was, it was set in its three-star way. Yeah. And I wanted to go and work for the hottest thing in London. Yeah. And that was him. Oh, my goodness me. What had I just walked into? You talk about Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. This is it. This was... I mean, you can only describe it as the SAS of kitchens, and that's what it was. And for me, that was the changing point of my life. Because my CV told me I was a very good chef. Okay. Where I worked. Yeah. Until I went there. And I realised how average I was. Really? Precision. Why? Precision, Simon. Think. Taste. Touch, feel, precision. Get it wrong, you're going to hear about it. And it was plate after plate, ingredient after ingredient, dish after dish, day after day, week after week, month after. How month. big is the? Was the team there when you opened? Six. Wow. It never got bigger than seven, and we needed probably 12 people to work that kitchen. But they did. A there was no space. People just kept leaving because it was too tough. And we were what Gordon used to call basically the Magnificent Seven. And every time we tried to become eight or nine, it always ended up as being seven. And I, I was the sous chef. I was the first person Gordon ever employed at the at the aubergine. I was the first in the kitchen. I was the first cook. He promoted me, gave me the job. I had to be the sous chef because that's actually what I really wanted. And I, he gave me a set of keys. He says, you open the kitchen and you close it every day. And that was 6.30 a.m. And I never, ever really closed it before 1.30 the next day. Wow, 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 wow. Seven oh days, se- seven days a week. Uh, six days a week, Simon. Six days a week, uh, Two two years solid. And it was, it was, it was a tough one. But I was ready. I was trained. I was hungry. I loved it.
0: So, so when you're in that position, and, and obviously, you know, you, the thing is, Gordon had a reputation. They did kind of boiling point and it showed kind of the quite, I can't think of another word other than brutality in that kitchen. No, it wasn't. Because that's what people saw from no, the
1: outside. Yeah, it was one-on-one. Yeah. In a confined space, in a closed environment, that is, people say to you, how did you deal with it? Why did you get up and do it? I, I, I just did it. It yeah. did it because I I wore the stripes, and it was an honour. And it, yeah, it was tough. And there's lots of stories w- w- that we we can't go into because it just takes too. <laughs> I'd be here all day, which I'd love talking about. And they're very special stories and they're very special times. But they're quite unique to the people who are in the kitchen at that any one time. That yeah, given time. I, I I get that. It, I
0: I always sort of feel that you know on on that. Level that it's almost kind of like you know like like a like a secret service yeah. that what those what stories are there. yeah unless you were there yeah. then yeah they they sort of stay so, there so so
1: you can now can see what I'd been through at the point when I then met you yeah and it could you could see both of us could see how different we 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 could be yeah but yet on the day or or cooking it wasn't an amazing dish it was a custard tart at the end of the day but it was about the three things the pastry the custard and the nutmeg, all working in harmony. And without that training, I couldn't have done that. I I would have just cooked a normal tart. Yeah. I I still couldn't make that custard tart now. And that's the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. hundred percent. So simple. Yeah. But it's it's all about the detail.
0: Well, suppose, you know, we've we've now established sort of where you are. I I suppose I never want to sort of define somebody by something that is, is sort of acrimonious but I can't have you on without talking about the, the split. Because, you know, Gordon was the person who you've acknowledged sort of almost made you into the chef that you are. Yeah. And then after kind of years of working with him, then a very acrimonious split. Yeah. I don't know how much you want to say or how much you don't really.
1: Well, whenever I speak of it, it, it always gets t- talked about and it, it's always been written about. And the split was, how can I describe it? It's almost like we were two, then we became three. Okay. So, do you remember Charles and Diana? They always yeah. thought there was another person in the relationship. Yeah. In my relationship with Gordon, it was so strong, so powerful. We we became best friends. You know, that guy stood next to me on my wedding day as my best man. And that, then a businessman came into the equation and turned us into big things. Right. And we needed it. But I felt there was a time, as time went on, where Gordon's career was growing and expanding and he was being massive he went on to television and he was opening america i felt like i was being controlled by a head office telling me how to do my job and i didn't feel comfortable with that and whenever i wanted to sort of scratch the surface of wanting to change that it was on on it was nothing it was never ever about gordon it was always about the corporate ed- entity and i and i struggled with that and the struggle the problem was never gordon it was always me that's the difference. And that, but looking back, I can reflect on that. I needed to be my own man and I needed to be my own boss. I, I couldn't I couldn't deal with being the shadow any longer. And I felt that I had the ability to want to move forward. Did you, so did you feel then
0: when when the expansion was happening, like you say, you felt like you were being controlled by a head office? Do you think, though, that Gordon changed? Did did, did he have to sort of stop being the person that was kind of constantly at it to then having to be a businessman?
1: Gordon was so far down the line. He didn't really know. He didn't see. His company was growing and it was incredible. And the chefs that were coming into it and that we were creating. Simon, listen, it was incredible. Incredible. And and I still look back on it. What we, Jason, Angela, myself, Sir Mark Sargent, Mark Askew, and many, 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 many others, we would all be still there today if things or people would listen. And we were a, such a strong unit in London and we were about to go global. Is is, is there a moment where, because it feels like you, like all
0: of you, you know, yourself, Angela, you know, I know pretty much all of you. Is there a defining moment we thought, right, this is over.
1: Yeah, for okay. me, for me, it was, and it was when I felt like I started to become the black sheep of the family, and because I started questioning things that I didn't, I didn't approve of. What was your dad's advice at that time? There was a bit. There's a bit of time where I didn't tell him everything, right. and I felt that my dad's advice, because I was talking about a corporate identity, my father never went corporate. So trying to get his reasoning to understand it, he was the wrong person to ask. Yeah. So I needed to look further afield for other for greater advice, and I just decided that. I had to to, to move forward and, 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 and almost. Do you know what I was doing, Simon? I was actually just picking a fight. Yeah. To have a fight, to have yeah. an argument, to fall out, to get a divorce and move on. Yeah. So it's as simple as that. And to become my own boss. But we'd learnt a lot and we'd all done good things together. Yeah. And we all worked together. And I think Gordon is probably, well, if you actually look at the story, look at what's developed out of him. Yeah. You know, the person running the office, how that's all changed and his is, life.
0: is your relationship dead with Gordon or, or you
1: back in no. you... do you know the only time last time I saw Gordon no. you'll never believe this the corridors of Downing Street the last time I saw you no <laughs> yes we were leaving literally past each other in a corridor or on our own hadn't seen him since the day I split from him wow I think we nodded I think I don't even know if we shook each other's hand or not but I just wish we'd had a chat Um yeah. and you know we both went on our merry way do you think you ever will Uh. I, uh if Gordon and I bumped into each other I'd like to think that we could have a a glass of wine and a drink and a chat I don't think we're the same I think we're very different but I think for a few hours it would be fucking funny to talk shit for a while wouldn't it (laughs) can you imagine what we'd talk about in fact we would be more than an hour it would be there for bloody weeks but I think we mustn't look back and think that those days are over and I hold no bitterness towards him or his family or yeah. his group or no one. I think what he's achieved is extraordinary. But I also admire what everyone's achieved that, have, that has been through that kitchen. And without that training, without that relationship, yeah. none of us would be in the boots we're in today. So let's go right up to date then. So yeah. so
0: what is in the, the, the wearing portfolio at the moment then? What have we got?
1: So I'm trying to go the other way now. I'm trying to de-risk everything. Okay. I'm 50. I'm 50 this year master chef is a big thing for me i love writing cookbooks i've got a small holding out in in East sussex that i've got uh orchard a uh, kitchen garden and uh do my own honey and i've got a 60 acres of land there that i've got sheep on i want to get into some form of uh, education yeah. through through uh, a bigger identity of of um teaching and hospitality i want to get down to back to one restaurant wow <clears throat> yeah okay yeah and i'm going to rethink I want to do more television I don't know a lot about food if I'm honest with you Simon you may laugh at that (laughs) um but there's a lot of food there's a lot of things about food I don't know like food around the world right cultural food flavors of food um cooking different food I've cooked my style all of my life but there's a whole world I want to discover in food and wine but I want to do it through I would love to do it through a documentary form and I'd love to one day do that for television yeah and then into the wider world of radio and books. So I've got, I want to expand my imagination and I'd like to present. Yeah. Um, I'd like to be able to talk to a camera about food, show people or talk to people about me discovering food, but I want to explain it to a viewer because I don't believe I know enough about food yet. And so my ambition is to look at the globe and say, where do I want to go? Where can I go and be educated? That's really, really... Surprise. Not Really? N-
0: I just think in terms of like what your forward
1: vision is. I don't think do they imagine why? that? I don't want the, the big company. Been there, done it. Yeah, okay. Been there, done it. And I've been part of corporate. I've been part of individual. I've had three restaurants. I could have had 10. I don't want to be shackled with a head office. Yeah. And I want to be free. I want to enjoy my kids. My son, Elder Son, has just gone to university. Archie's 16 this week and Jesse's 13. Jesse's got four or five years of school. We go to great schools. I want to be part of every inch of that. Yeah. And I want to do all these things and do that. When my daughter, if she wants to go to university, then she's my last when Once to go to university, five, six years from now, I've got a whole new career in front of me of doing new things. And I'm going to be as energetic and as lively as you are at your age yeah. as I am when I get to that. And so I'm 50. So when she finishes, I'm going to be 55, 56. Yeah. I want to get stronger and stronger and do more and more things. And that doesn't mean just doing restaurants. Go and broaden your imagination and be brave to do that. Love it, love it. To tell you, the, the most joyous thing has been about kind of doing this podcast is that we discover
0: things about people that yeah. I never imagined that you're gonna discover. And that yeah. has absolutely kind of blown me away. I think the other thing, I mean, we're, we're sort of at, at the midpoint of this, is that from competing with your British, great British menu and the person that you were then you're clearly still as driven as you ever were, but you are a different person. Yes, I, I can feel that. You know, there's a there's a uh, a broadening of kind of your of your outlook. You know, rather than being right, okay, here we go. This is Marcus Waring, mission side chef. This is this is it. Work is everything. Like you know, like your dad's kind of world has yeah. always been, and it feels now that work with a small W is
1: everything it, now. It's interesting you say that because that chef you just talked about is still there. Yeah, you know, of he's, course. It's sat in a filing cabinet in the back of my head. Yeah. I don't want to be that person anymore. Okay. You know, when I reflect on my career and I reflect on when I was striving for excellence and success, the things I said and the things I did in kitchens are things I want to be proud of. But I certainly don't want to go back to being that person. And that's like speaking in the third person. And I suppose in some sense I am. But you don't achieve things in life by being Mr. Nice Guy in catering. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Yeah. Not from not from the school that I'm from. No. You know, I, you could say you're from the school of hard knocks. You've been brought up a hard way. You've worked in this particular fashion. Of course, that's who you are. I'd love to be as cuddly and as friendly and as nice as Tom <laughs> Gerridge. I would love to be able to chocolate everything in life. We don't like to be like oh, that. Jesus. <laughs> he's just never miserable. He's, never, he's always happy. And he'll give yeah. anyone a hug, and I'm thinking, yeah. God, you know what he said to me once. I went on to Great British. <laughs> Actually, I did a step in judging with him because he can't eat shellfish. Uh-huh. So when he was uh, became a, a mentor judge on Great British Menu, I was invited to body up with him to taste the shellfish. Yeah. And I went into the room and I did all the shellfish tasting, and then I was listening to the way I said He came out, and he did his judging. And he was telling the chefs what he thought. He said, "I said you as hard as nails." On... I said to him, "You was hard as yeah. nails on those guys." I didn't really on those chefs. I didn't yeah. realize you were so tough. He says, "In his in his west." country accent he said yep he said i am he said but the difference between me and you is i do it with a smile on my face <laughs> <laughs> and again he sums me up i said yeah I said, i'm just a miserable
0: son there you go it's impatient right okay so let, let's have a bit of fun right. um so what we do um every single episode of this i've got i've got to put my glasses on i can't see a thing without them anymore this is, that's the thing when you do me get too. old me you've too. got yours round yep. your neck each week, our chefs, we give him a recipe challenge and we are give Marcus 45 seconds yeah. to sell me a simple dish that he'd make while entertaining his family and friends this autumn and winter. But as regular listeners will know, you're cooking outdoors on a barbecue. Absolutely. So you've got any cut of meat, fish or veg. You've got to make a marinade or a rub. Yep. Uh, you've got to have a sauce and you have got a cold side. Yep. Uh, you only have 45 seconds to do it. Um, and what you need.
1: Me. You are timing me, aren't you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah or are yeah, you yeah. taking the recipe down. Uh, and what, yeah,
0: yeah, actually, no, I'll probably do that. Um, and, and what you have to do is give me the title of it, 45 seconds. I'll give you a little bit of a countdown. And there's been some good and some bad on this. I've yep. got to say, Ainsley was very good. Well, he would be, wouldn't he? Well, Ainsley was like he, listening to... He lives on a barbecue. Well, Ainsley was also like listening to some kind of like slightly erotic novel, the way that he described it.
1: <laughs> are you ready, Mr. Whirly? I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay, three... Two, one, go. Right, my my recipe for barbecue would be a shoulder of lamb that's been butterflied, marinated with garden herbs from my garden. Any herbs you can get your hands on. Lots of olive oil, salt and pepper. Twenty four hours. Cook it slowly on the barbecue. Served with a chimichurri sauce, the South American cold sauce. Chilies, loads of herbs from the garden, gone. and. Crispy green salad, wraps, and a little bit of, of creme fraiche with some yoghurt inside. But that lamb has to be melt in the mouth. Beautifully cooked, nice and slowly. Job done.
0: 31 seconds. Actually, it's a really good description. Sounds delicious. Oh, plus, yeah. a, plus a fry lamb, slow cooked, yeah. I think is one of my favourite things in the entire world.
1: I, I love lamb. It's my favourite. But I've recently been cooking on the Barbecue, cooking this dish. Uh, down in Kent, slowly, and out, and I love it because you're cooking outside. You've got a fire going, you've got a barbecue going. Yeah. You get your coat on, you go outside, and because the because the dishes are all cold, and you've got your wraps, and we've got an arga down there, and we just put all the wraps on the arga, and they just warm up gently on the solid top. Nice. Get a little bit of crunchiness to them. Yeah. But that chimichurri sauce, yeah. that that South that American acidity. Oh, it's yeah. lovely with a little bit of red wine vinegar in there. Hot with the red with the with the green chilies, but tons of herbs. It just like it's just oh, it's great on, on the wrap break the lamb up with all the fat and all that marinade and the smoky smokiness of the barbecue. I think outdoor super. barbecuing
0: is much better in the winter than the summer. I, agree. I think when I the weather's agree. cold, yep. it's much better. Yeah. So you you said previously that you learned to barbecue
1: when you were yep. upstate New York. So so what kind of things were you cooking? What's really interesting about barbecuing in where I'm from? My my, my dad would call barbecuing foreign meat from Australia. <laughs> anything you know he calls pasta foreign mock from italy i'm not eating that rubbish you (laughs) said you'll never get so i've never trained on barbecues and i would never cooked on a barbecue in my life before yeah uh, at home so when i went to america we used to go to uh, i worked at a place called the point and the point is a rock this rock face that off the mountain that well basically it goes into 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 the lake and it is it is a point and we used to have these barbecues set up there what i learned in america was big barbecue and is massive barbecue, some on fire, some on coal, but you learn about the temperature of the fire. You yeah. learn about how to control it. But there's one thing they did over there that I don't really see much over here. Well, I, I haven't done it. Was they used to blanch days before all the chicken, all the ribs, blanched in water, in wow. stock, good flavour, and allow everything to be cooked and cooled in that water. Then it was taken out. It was then wrapped in this beautiful barbecue, homemade barbecue sauce yeah. for another 24 hours. And then we'd just go up onto the point, onto the fire, and all we needed to do was just give it the and the yeah. colouring, the warming. But all the blanching tenderised it along the way. And then the, it was all wrapped in sauce. So if you took a drumstick, wrapped it in a good barbecue sauce, and cooked it till it was cooked... It'd be knackered by the time you could eat it. It'd be burnt yeah, yeah, yeah. and it wouldn't work. So the blanching of all the ingredients and the meats yeah. was the key to success. That's and a great. it's a great tip. That's a really good and tip. And make a really good sauce. Or coat it in a yeah, good yeah. barbecue sauce and leave it for 24 hours. That's, that's a great tip. And your barbecue and it's simple because then you can enjoy it. The point of, for me, barbecue, is not to stand over it like a donut for hours. Yeah. It's actually to enjoy the, your family and your friends in the company. Yeah, it, it should be a social activity, yeah. shouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, and that's what we did. It it. Great. Good tip. Well,
0: let, let's talk about the way in which you go about kind of food then in, in, in this part, mm. where that, that whole thing of creating recipes, how does your mind work? So if you're, if you're yeah. going to create
1: a say you've got a new menu coming on. Yeah. How does the process happen? Well, up until Master Chef putting that in the menu, we're doing this, we're doing that, and i would tell someone what to do. Yeah. Then I come back and start to talk to the chefs in more detail. And then you realize, actually, have got quite a lot of talent in this kitchen. They've all got great ideas. I need to get that out of them. So how how do I get a chef to do what's floating around in my head? I don't write the recipes down. I don't go to a chef, there you go, let's try this out, or I've just found this recipe off the internet, give it a shot. I give them a sense of flavor. So I, last week, opened the Barclay uh, on the 1st of October. It's been two weeks running. I went and ate with my wife, as as I think it's really important as chefs you eat in your own dining room. Agree. Sit down, be the customer, see it from the customer point of view. Yeah. I said to my chef, who's worked with me for a long time, I want a dish. I want to simplify my menus. I want to just, you know what? I just want to enjoy, have fun now. COVID's leveled everything out. So I don't care what guys or anyone thinks. I actually just want to enjoy myself. Yeah. I want mushrooms and foie gras on toast. And I want it with a great Madeira truffle sauce. And he looked at me and it's like, Okay, why? I said because those are the flavours I just want to taste. Yeah, yeah. Work it out for yourself. Yeah. Serve me that dish when I came to eat, and it's best foie gras dish i would eaten because he put a bit of him in it, okay. and he put all his skill in it, and all the precision of how I look for something, and he brought that dish. Well, it was it was served in front of me, and it was absolutely mind blowing. Seps so two pieces of toast, soaked them in foie gras fat, cooked them on the plancha grill, nice and crispy. Sept beautifully fried in butter. Herbs. We had the big piece of foie gras on top of the other piece of toast, quince puree, and a, and a, a, just a lightly uh, scented, flavoured uh, small grot cherries, full of alcohol but yet yeah, pungent with flavour. Herbs, and then this stunning Madeira truffle sauce that was just <laughs> fucking mind blowing. <laughs> it's going on the menu tomorrow. That sounds amazing. That's how I. That's how I do my menus now, and I want my chefs to bring themselves into the dish. But it will always be on my train track, not their train track. Yeah. My road, not your road.
0: So would your chefs now? Now with the, with the new kind of semi-Tom Kerridge cuddly Marcus wearing. <laughs> semi, uh, <laughs> So what, do you think your guys have more confidence to come to you now and say, Chef? Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. I, now the message when we came back after this, yeah, and I, I've been like this for a few years now. And they, in the last couple of years, they think I've gone mad when I say, guys, I just want to have fun. Yeah. Let's just have a great time. If we make a mistake in front of the customers, just apologise. Just give them a glass of shampoo, whatever you want, but let's just have fun. And I've been talking about this. So I go in now and they think, something wrong with Marcus at the moment. Is he <laughs> I'm, all right a, I'm getting a little bit worried about you. Do you know why? <laughs> because I've done and been and worn so many T-shirts, Simon. If I can't go out enjoying my job, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. You know, you've got your house, you've got your cars, you've got your restaurants, you've got your books, you've got your TV career. You've got so many things. If you can't have fun with it, then do, what's the point? Do, do you think as well that uh, you
0: know everyone that we're kind of interviewing are sort of successful people? Do you think as well there's there's an element of age as well in it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of you know that you you're coming up to to fifty and you look at it and you kind of go, you know, what? I'm loving my life. You know, I need to be. I need to give myself a bit of leg room now.
1: I think th- I think you're right. I think I've, if I reflect back and I say to people I've been in kitchens thirty four years. Yeah. That's a long time, 34 years. You, yeah. know, you get less for manslaughter, you know, yeah. you know, you say, it, it, but I'm not done. Yeah. This is it. So 10 to 15 more years because I enjoy business. I love business. I love making money. Yeah. I love expanding my thinking. I just loved. I love, I also want to show my children that you can do more than one thing in life. And I want to be a mentor to not just them, but to other people as well. I have found the most incredible talent on MasterChef. Talent, Simon, that would never get discovered, ever, if it hadn't gone through the MasterChef process. That's brilliant. Because that process is brutal on those chefs. But it is a, a start and finish. Why are they on MasterChef? 48 chefs. Why are they on? Because they're lost. They don't yeah. know where they are. They don't know how good they are. They work in jobs where the chefs don't tell them anything. Yeah. Some of them don't even get any feedback. They walk onto that set and they get hit with the skills test. It breaks the boundaries down and what we do is we open them up like a packet of crisps and we just go through each one, one by one, and we, we get through it. And then when you get down to your final 12, 8, 6 and 3, what we've developed and what we've opened up and put back into the industry is amazing young talent who've gone through an incredible experience. What I do see now is the final 3 or 4 are the stars of the future yeah but the key to success isn't just winning the competition or being in it, it's what you do from it. Yes, completely. You're yeah. not going to be winning the Olympics because you've done a bit of training for six months. yeah you know it's about your life's work. so when we we, we let them go back into their world, I like to keep touch with them, I like to communicate That's with great. them. I like to be an open door yeah I'm all, I'll be a mentor for anybody that wants to listen, brilliant. And Absolutely. because I've got a lot of rights and wrongs and things I've been through not just in cooking, but in business as well, even to the point of losing my second star. Yeah. How you react, Simon's the key. Yeah. How you, how you get up that next day. No one in an interview or chef has ever, ever asked me about that. Why? I 12 wonder. years. Yeah. Because it's, they see it as an embarrassing question. It's character building. Yeah. I wore that T-shirt for 12 years. Why did I lose that? So why did you lose it? Did you lose focus? Did business you... is more important than accolades. Okay. Because business puts my children into clothes it puts food on the table the day the day it did happen though was it a tough day i knew the day before yeah um shock yeah
0: was it the right decision did they make the right decision uh
1: having spoken to the editor yeah okay yeah i'll accept it because i don't believe they'd taken off me if they hadn't seen i was cutting margins i was running the business for the margins okay i was running the business to stay alive to keep money in the bank and when you've got no business partner and you don't like losing money, I'm not going to run a company into the ground because I want an accolade. Next no chance, mate. That's good. No. And it's how you react from it. 24 hours of dry, uh, crying into your pillar because it was, I was told on a Sunday. Yeah. I got up the following day and I was a rocket back into that kitchen and I stood in front of that team and I was the rock that they all lent on. Good. And That for me yeah. is how you react to disappointment. Never be afraid of failure. Yeah, never. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I you, agree. you're the Pretty same. Agree. You're in business. God, yeah. But we've, we've had loads of failures. You're talking about your biggest thing you've ever done in your life, yeah. being taken off you. And I could feel that day that that news came out. I could feel certain chefs dancing on my coffin. And I, and, and so for me, it was here we go. Yeah. What are we going to do now? How are we going to get up? And it's about breathing positivity because I could have sunk that ship. Could have sunk that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got stronger. We've got better. And I'm surviving through COVID. And we actually now, I hear other chefs talk about this and accolades and they want this. They live and breathe and die. And actually, there's one chef out there who has been a two-star chef for many years and should have been three-star years ago. There's not a year goes by that it doesn't torture him that he's not been a three-star chef. Get over it. Yeah. Get over it. You're going to kill yourself if you're not careful. Yeah. And enjoy it. Enjoy yourself. Right, final thing for you. Mm. Um, every episode, we ask all of our guests to kind
0: of give us a little bit of a hidden gem. So it can't be, it can't be a fancy restaurant. Uh, It could be anywhere in the world. It could be somewhere that you've been. We're looking for, you know, coffee shop. It might be a greasy spoon. It might be a little deli. Somewhere that is your little hidden gem, your little secret that you, if you've got a little chance to be on your own for a little while and have that bit of a a Marcus Ware moment, where are you taking our listeners?
1: Believe it or not, it's actually where I live, um, which is in, in Wimbledon. And there's a little restaurant. It's quite a small one. It's not a greasy spoon because it's a restaurant. It's called Light on the Common. Uh And it's where I go to for a fry-up, a proper fry-up. And it's absolutely fantastic. And they they, they serve lunch and dinner. But for me, their fry-up, that's where I go. And I always, whenever my kids go back to school, the morning I take them back, we go there. They go to boarding schools. And I just love a good fry-up in it. Calling it a greasy spoon is the wrong word, actually. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely place light on the common just by the common and then I just go for a walk on the common Love that Love that Marcus it's been a tremendous episode this I've, I've
0: absolutely loved it I, yeah, I've learned great. so much about you you know like I can say you've always been one of my kind of food heroes you always have you know from, from when we competed in Great British Menu feeling completely and utterly in awe of your expertise what I've kind of learned about you today is amazing and finding where you are
1: now it's just been a fantastic journey but no matter what we've done you or me, we both sit here in a studio with T-shirts, jeans and boots on. Yeah. We're the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've just had a different journey. Yeah. We're two chefs doing two things and that is it. And then when you actually boil it all down, everyone's on a different path. Yeah. We're uh, both the same. at the heart. It cuts us in half, it says cook in the middle. Yeah. It's all about passion. It's
0: all about that love and desire. Mm. And I think equally, I think now, you know, as gentlemen of a certain age, it's also about kind of making sure that we're having the Best time, yeah, that we possibly can yeah. with it, Marcus. It's been a joy thank to you. see you. Thank you so much for My coming pleasure. on, Grilling. Fantastic, Cheers, thank right. you. Thanks again to Marcus for taking time out of his hectic schedule. Great to hear him on such candid form. Now, hopefully, he's given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber grill this winter too. His blanching technique that he learned in the States sounds like it's well worth the effort. So head to Weber.com for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve yourself. There are literally tens and tens of fantastic recipes and loads of tips. And if you head to webber.com forward slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with the purchase of selected accessories. Subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app, give us a rating and tell your friends too. And do check out our previous episodes if you haven't already. We'll be back again next week with the Hairy Bikers. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Until next time, cheers for now.